Fish is delicious, isn't it? Well, nowadays, there are a few problems that we can't directly see or taste. All fish contain small amounts of methyl mercury, the most toxic form of mercury. For humans, fish consumption represents the main source of it. As always, I'm linking to all the research in the show notes so you can check it out. You may know pregnant women should be very careful with fish. That's weird, isn't it? But it has good reasons. Using ultrasound, researchers checked the brain size of babies of pregnant women. Those who had high blood levels of mercury had babies with a 14% shorter cerebellum, aka their baby's brains were smaller. But it's not just dangerous during pregnancy, but also afterwards. Even if a child eats only the amount of fish that is recommended by the governmental reports, it can negatively affect their neurological and behavioral development. High exposure can cause a shrunken brain disorder. The half-life of mercury in our blood is about 100 days. Within a few months of not eating fish, you can clear a lot of it out of your blood, but not out of your brain. In the brain, it can take decades before your body can manage to get rid of it. For instance, only when you cut out fish for at least five years do you see a significant drop in the pesticide PCB-153, which is a tumor-promoting pollutant. Researchers investigated 59 pollutants. For example, they also measured the levels of pesticides like DDT, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and toxic elements, Farmed fish was worse in general. Let's imagine Pablo, a theoretical consumer in Spain who chooses to eat farmed fish. Poor Pablo will get exposed to twice the levels of pollutants than if he would eat wild-caught fish. But just because something is less bad doesn't make it good. Also, we need to keep in mind the microplastics, which may get stuck in your mind. But them What's a really bad joke? Yeah, so microplastics were found in all investigated fish muscle samples. The plastic may release absorbed pollutants, like PCBs mentioned before, and release plastic chemicals and additives causing fun things like hormone disruption, cancer risk, and DNA damage all-inclusive. Sometimes the flesh of the fish has more microplastics than the organs. Taking weekly servings may endanger your health. As humankind, we have been increasingly throwing industrial waste into the rivers and oceans, like out of sight, out of mind. However, we can't separate this from our food chain. If we pollute the oceans and the soils and the air, it will find its way into our food and into our bodies. This is one of the big reasons why I'm super excited to introduce you to Lou Cooperhouse, the president and CEO of Blue Nalu, a leading fast-growing company in cellular agriculture, focusing on seafood and particularly fish. Blue Nalu was founded in 2017 and they have raised 24 million so far. Lou has had a 35-year career in the food industry and has founded and advised many startups. As you may notice in the interview, Lou is a big thinker and he has planned a big undertaking designed to scale. Compared to the amount of media coverage that cell-based meat is getting, fish is relatively under the radar, but so interesting. 
One intriguing info that we didn't get to is Blue Nalu's go-to-market strategy. Many fish species are not available during certain times of the year. A cell-based fish can be created anywhere, anytime. They can launch their fish right when the conventional supply is running out. I find this brilliant and I hope you will enjoy the interview as much as I did. You're listening to Red to Green Season 1 on Cellular Agriculture. Poultry without chicken, cheese without cows, and today, fish fillets without fish. To get an introduction to the topic, check out the previous interviews. Remember to subscribe to not miss exciting future episodes and share Red to Green with anyone interested in food tech, health, or sustainability. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the Red to Green podcast on food innovations that are better for the planet and better for you. And I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Lou, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Tell us a fun fact about you. I guess the fun facts about me is I just love innovation, Marina. Just really um, been 35 years in the food industry. I worked at all kinds of companies, large multinationals like Campbell Soup, Conagra, uh, a number of startups along the way, but always been thrilled by the startup really creating a, a business opportunity from the ground up. And I've done that with different technologies like high pressure processing, modified atmosphere, sous vide, cook chill, different kind of products I've worked on, like the first ever you know, broad scale development of gluten-free products. Uh, that was even in the uh, mid 90s. So you know, kind of on the front end of uh, when these categories became exciting. And similarly, I just became absolutely fascinated by this whole opportunity that exists in alternative proteins, and particularly in cell-based. And I saw this as a huge opportunity to really make a difference uh, for consumers uh, worldwide and, and really create a more sustainable supply chain for our future. So let's talk about the red part of the topic. When we are moving from red to green, what is the problem that Blunalu is tackling? No, the, the problem that we're tackling uh, is really something that's quite significant. As a, a veteran of the food industry, I, as I think about what's, what's really occurring and very, very aware to all of us during this pandemic is our supply chain. And the mm -hmm. global supply chain of seafood, in my opinion, is one of the more vulnerable ones on the entire planet. Land animals and, and even other sources of protein and grains are frankly above ground and are things that we could control far greater than we can those that are below water. And in the world of seafood, a great deal of it is imported around the world. If you think about the industry today in America, for example, somewhere between 60 and 90%, depends on which data you use, of the seafood mm. we consume is imported. And it comes from great distances. So it might come from Southeast Asia, 8,000, 9,000 miles to say New York City, all the challenges of sustainability, environmental footprint that goes along with that, with ocean vessels and, and labor and the reality that we're literally fishing, not catching if, in some cases. And there's associated bycatch species that are unknown to us that we're capturing, you know, that or I should say not desired, you know, in, in capturing and in many cases are thrown back into the oceans uh, and not in the live state for that matter. Uh, and that number can be 10, 20, 30% of the seafood caught and sometimes uh, higher. 
And then it shipped those long distances and containers and air freight and other means. And then it experiences like 60% yield at the restaurant. So, you know, as you look at the red part of, of the issue and the current challenges, there's also issues. First of all, the demand for seafood is at all-time high. People love seafood around the world, but our supply is, is increasingly challenged, as I described, and really can't keep up with the demand that's anticipated in the future, particularly mm. as our, our GDP increases in many nations around the world. So we're going to increasingly create a larger gap. And furthermore, that gap is increasingly challenged. Consumers are aware of microplastics, environmental pollutants. There's challenges we have that are totally outside our control, like algae blooms, acidification, warming oceans, effects of climate change. So as a planet, we need to do something to really create another solution to wild-caught and farm-raised seafood. And Blue Nalu was really created as a third leg on that supply chain, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. to create a more sustainable and consistent supply chain to really feed the world in the future. You know, and in our case, as we describe it, it's a, a product that's healthy for people and, and, of course, safe, but also sustainable for our planet and, and also is great for wildlife and, and animals that can now remain in the ocean and really preserve that really valuable ecosystem that we all need to survive on our planet. Can you elaborate more on the health aspects of your fish? Comparing it to wild cod or farmed fish, what are the benefits that blue nalo fish can offer? Yeah, so we're, we're literally somewhere about a year to a year and a half away from having our product in commerce. So one benefit is obviously sustainability, which is a very higher order benefit. But there's also obviously benefits to human health. So obviously it's a product that doesn't have mercury or, or any microplastics or environmental contaminants. So certainly healthy for people. Even at the food service level, it's a product that has 100% yield, doesn't require the back-of-the-house labor for trimming, which is increasingly challenging mm. for many food service operators. It's a product without head or tail. It's just a filet and no bone, no skin, et cetera. So, so it offers a number of benefits at, at that consumer level. But we also believe it'll even have a longer shelf life because this product doesn't have the mm -hmm. Uh, potential to experience cross-contamination from fish skin, which might normally be found when trimming fish and, uh, and filleting fish, because again, we're just preparing the, the, the flesh itself. No matter how you look at it, it's really just just enormous amount of positives. In a couple of interviews, I heard you talk about your plan to actually create factories which are nearby cities. So, you can match your supply very well with the demand. One could also say that increases freshness as well, right? That's correct, Marina. It's really a total paradigm shift because as I mentioned, as I described, but what we're doing at Bunal was we're, we're redefining local when it comes to cell-based seafood. It's a supply-driven issue. If you think about a restaurant menu, it's the only item on the menu that typically would say, you know, in America, we would call it market price, MP, would be on the menu, which basically means that the seafood that might be available to the consumer will be determined you know, more or less at the last minute because the supply of what we can actually procure and what price it will be is sometimes unknown, unlike what you might find with a ribeye steak or some other premium items on the menu. So what we're doing with Lunalva is we're literally creating factories that are demand-driven, not supply-driven where we can literally replace the situation today with those you know, great distances of shipping, 
with the loss in bycatch and the loss in yield with 100% yield of product that's made at a factory that might be, you know, 50 kilometers uh, or 100 miles or so away mm-hmm. from where the consumer's audience is. So it's a really total shift, just kind of redefining local. And, and frankly, we can manufacture ultimately just a great deal of fish species. So seafood species that might be unknown to consumers because they do come from such long distances or they may not be available year round can now be available you know, year round on a consistent basis. And from a, from a, a factory that looks a bit like a microbrewery, that's not too far away from where the market is. And I know one thing that is very interesting to foodies, how would the taste be? And could you create completely new types of fish which have never been tasted before? Funny question. Great question, Marina. So uh, I'm a foodie as well. And, and uh, Blue Nile, we're totally driven by what's most important to consumers. And all, and all the data shows that the number one criteria for repeat purchase in the food industry is taste. Yeah. So we might all be excited by innovation or sustainability and nutrition and other benefits, but the product must taste great. And that's totally what drives us as well. So we, we have a, a really strong relationship with the culinary community. We're working with expert chefs from around the world already. We even have investors in our company that are chefs. And mm. uh, so that being said, we actually did a demonstration event you know, late last year and late 2019 where we actually were able to demonstrate that our product had the same characteristics as conventional seafood. And, and all those characteristics include how it, how it's prepared. Does it brown? Does it, does it smell the same? So all the sensory attributes that you associate with seafood, we were able to demonstrate, you know, one-to-one from conventional product. So we're quite excited at delivering a product that is in every aspect, the same as conventional fish. This industry, just as a perspective, was mm. in the early days was called in vitro. It's not a name that anybody uses anymore. Mm. But yeah. the logic there, it's it's the same sort of logic as making a, a human being outside the body, which was at one time a very foreign idea, but is now quite accepted. Test two babies, if you will. And similarly, we're making a seafood, not a living fish, but a, a fish fillet outside the body as well. So we're similarly replicating all the same characteristics but doing it outside the body, in our case, large stainless steel tanks that the industry would call bioreactors that looks a bit like a microbrewery mm. manufacturing not wine or beer, but actually muscle cells of fish that are bathed in, in the nutrients that they would normally have if they were living fish. So it's a very similar in lots of ways to what we're doing with fish shells that might be found uh, in living fish as well. What was the type of fish that you were presenting at the last event? Yeah, that was uh, the first one that we worked on was actually yellowtail amberjack. And kind of our model as we go around the world is to really make seafood that people are familiar with wherever we go to market. It's a fish that's well known in in California, but it's also found around the world in various ways. But we're also working on mahi-mahi, red snapper, and tuna as well. So we're ultimately creating marine is, is really a, a library, if you will, of cells, uh, cell lines, as they're called, that mm. would be available to be produced somewhat on demand. If you think about just how exciting this idea is, God forbid there is a, a problem 
with a particular species that goes on a watch list or suffers from uh, some effects of climate change or some other or, or an environmental disaster, God forbid, we could literally turn off one species, if you will, in, the, in our factory and turn on another one, actually fill that gap. So that's the beauty of what we're doing is we're no longer limited by our supply, but instead can have a library of species that we can really produce on demand. That's fascinating. Could you use that to bring back uh, the ecosystem in the ocean? That's exactly our idea, is to really help you know, supplement that global s- supply and global demand for seafood, allow more fish to stay in the ocean, and even bring back species that, that have been in- environmentally challenged. And, and for example, many restaurants and consumers uh, no longer prefer to consume because they are endangered. So at mm. now we're totally focused on species that are that are endangered, uh, that are difficult to farm raise, uh, that are typically imported, and that are on, on various watch lists, et cetera. Uh, and also those that might have high amounts of mercury. So mm. we can literally you know, provide seafood that consumers uh, are no longer consuming and, and I'll make them available. And at the same time, allow more fish to stay in the ocean and to continue surviving. Um, when you began your op- operations in June 2018, there were no fish muscle cell lines available worldwide. And pretty much you were starting from scratch with your research. What do you think has this been not prioritized before? So why is there so much research on mammals and so little research on fish? A great question, Marina. Yeah, there, there's been so much knowledge around uh, mammalian cell culturing going back several decades because of, of some of the challenges that we have with, with human beings. Mm. And, and so whether it's mice or hamsters or humans, you know, there's an awful lot of science and an enormous industry knowledge around mammalian cell culturing. And there really wasn't uh, a particular need to work on fish species. There's a little bit of work on aquarium fish, zebrafish and, and some others, for example, but not really for any you know, scientific purposes that could really benefit mankind. So we didn't know, frankly, when we began, how well we would be able to to culture cells from from fish. And and frankly, those that had tried it had failed. And there was really a total white space, you know, just really no knowledge about how one could propagate cell lines in fish species. And we were very uh, fortunate to have been able to accomplish that over over the first uh, three to six months of our operation and, and continue wow. to, to build upon that and go from one species to the next. So our whole approach at Blunalu is to really develop uh, what we call platform technology to demonstrate that we can do arguably any fin fish, saltwater or freshwater, whether it's a, a fish that might be a long-living or short-living fish, Atlantic or Pacific, fast-swimming or slow-swimming so if you think about all the different characteristics of living fish, we weren't sure how the cell line propagation would work, giving some of the natural differences in living fish and how that might or might not apply to fish cells. Hmm. But long story short, we're very excited to have been able to really develop this platform technology across a broad array of fin fish. In the future, we're also excited to look at crustaceans like lobster and crab and other species mm-hmm. that might make sense. Again, in our demand-driven model, you know, if, if we want to be in the Asian market and look at eel, 
or the European market and look at sea bream or the American market and look at you know, mahi-mahi and red snapper and other species. And of course, tuna, which is uh, loved worldwide. You know, these are all things that we could bring to market uh, with our technology. What markets are you focusing on right now? Yeah, we're initially launching in, in the U.S. And, and we're targeting food service initially. Many food products begin in restaurants. And frankly, it's a great way to really lo- learn as you introduce products in a very small way. So in our case, we could look at white tablecloth, fast casual, quick service, you know, utilizing the product as an ingredient, you know, like in an appetizer, for example, or as a center of the plate entree. So these are the various learnings that you, would, you can do in food service, and you can then take that learning to launch in retail. So where our initial market is food service in America, but we're clearly uh, focused on the global opportunity. And, and we recognize, for example, that in Asia, the per capita consumption of seafood is more or less four times what it is in both America and Europe, and maybe five times what it is in South America and other continents. So we're, we're, we're very focused on the opportunity that exists in Asia, but also in Europe and, and North America, uh, South America as well. So in that regard, we really have raised funding to date from 11 different nations from Asia, North and South America, Europe, and the Middle East. So we're totally positioning Blunalo as a global opportunity. But again, you know, like every business, you need to work in, in phases. And let's, let's learn in our backyard first, and then really take that learnings and, and uh, grow that around the world. Yeah, I can totally imagine that the invention and the spread of a Selec fish will change the consumer behavior in a way that, for example, in Europe, you don't get to eat certain types of fish possibly because they are just not available. You don't get them versus in China, there's a different consumption pattern because they have different ecosystems. So do you see that you could uh, spread completely different fish species to new countries where they aren't popular? Because obviously you can pop up factory anywhere And that could actually be super interesting for people to taste completely new different fish species. That's, that's absolutely true. So whether it's, you know, you know, a Japanese eel in the Asia market or a species they never had before. So you're absolutely right. You know, the, the potential is really limitless, what we can bring to consumers. So we're very driven by, you know, like with, like with many food products, you need to begin with what's familiar to people, you know, and then obviously you can continue to, enrich people's interests and lives with the more and more applications and opportunities. You know, for example, not only can we have species that you're not familiar with, but it's possible that we even can provide even greater benefits. So for example, more omega-3s and 6s that might be normally found in seafood. So mm-hmm. there could be some nutritional enhancements that could be available in the future as well. So then let's answer some of the critics um, one feedback that I get um, quite a bit is, well, there should be studies on this. Um, there should be systematic trials where people get to eat these sort of new processed foods. And then we see what the health impacts are. What would you answer those concerns? All food products that are meat, poultry, or seafood based fall under a regulation that's common in Europe as well called HACCP. You know, hazard mm-hmm. analysis critical control point. That's a five-letter acronym, HACCP. 
And we also have potential hazards and we also respond to that with critical control points, just mm-hmm. as if we were conventional meat and poultry products, which similarly have hazards and control points. So yes, we are consistent with that uh, logic and we are following that same pathway and providing a total transparency to the FDA in our situation with exactly what our process is and demonstrating that is very you know, consistently managed with a, a HACCP system in place. I've read that uh, your fish is non-GMO. Is that right? That's correct. So we found that to be one way to produce these products is using genetic engineering, and that could be accomplished in various ways. But we also recognize that it could be accomplished in a more natural way. And we felt that was very important, Marina, to try the harder route, if you will, and to demonstrate that our products could be manufactured without using uh, the principles of genetic engineering. So mm-hmm. we're literally taking precursor muscle cells. We're not, you know, what we're not doing, we're not taking uh, stem cells and, you know, and differentiating them to be something that they weren't designed to be. But instead, we're taking precursor muscle cells, in our case, and also working with pre-adipocytes uh, for fat cells that are designed to be fat cells or muscle cells, for example. And then and we've, we've figured out how, how we can, in fact, propagate those cells without using genetic engineering. So we did that because two reasons. One is we know that around the, you know, Americans are, if you will, a bit more familiar and more forgiving for genetically engineered products, but that's Mm. not true necessarily in Europe and Asia to the same degree. Mm. So we want our product to have, you know, a globally accepted, you know, technology and many food products go through all sorts of technical means to be produced. And ours is no different than many other products that we consume today. But why introduce something new when we could avoid it, like genetic engineering? And we felt that would be you know, really very beneficial to us to maximize consumer adoption and also uh, minimize any regulatory hurdles we might have as well. So we're very excited that we've been able to accomplish this in this, in this way. Interesting. For people who are not in the field and who are not scientists, could you describe the process with which you create your fish? It's obviously very proprietary, but even from the beginning of Blunalo, our whole focus has been on proof of concept, you know, and this technology, some people still call lab made. Well, every food product begins in a lab, but what's important mm-hmm. is what does large scale production look like? And maybe one way to help, you know, your listeners is that this product uh, really looks to consumer like a microbrewery. So here you have large stainless steel tanks, bioreactors, as they're called, that might be 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 liter capacity, not, not wine or beer, but instead muscle cells bathed in a nutrient-rich media, similar in some degrees to what fish are consuming in aquaculture feed. So, you know, amino acids, salt, sugars, lipids, you know, other nutrients are provided in this solution. And the cells continue to propagate in really large volumes. And then they're assembled. So the fat cells, you know, the muscle cells, connected tissue cells are then assembled together to create that finished filet. So it, it does begin, you know, at the one, three, 10 liter at the lab. And then it, you know, evolves as all food products do into pilot production, you know, thousand liter, 2000 liter capacity, and then ultimately to large scale production at 50,000, 200,000 liter capacity. And so that's really kind of the evolution of our process. You know, right now we're kind of uh, entering the middle phase of that growth. 
We call it phase three, you know, where we'll soon be producing a product at 2000 liter capacity. And that'll kind of be a, a model for what large scale production looks like, which might be somewhere between, you know, 100 times that capacity in a, what we would call a phase five factory operation. What are challenges that are unique to the seafood space compared with cultivated beef? Yeah, I think we obviously are not in, in the other categories, so we, we can't really directly compare the challenges that we have versus other protein products. However, some of the challenges that they may have is actually manufacturing a product that really, you know, one of your earlier questions about taste uh, and, and characteristics of the product. So if you think about the seafood industry and you think about the meat industry, obviously there's a category which we'll call ground-informed products like hamburgers. And there's a lot of other ground-informed products too. Hams are and other products kind of fall within that that world of, of foods. Then you kind of go up the value chain and you have something like a ribeye steak or a chicken breast. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's if you will, a whole muscle product that might in the case of a steak might have marbling and just all sorts of complexity and texture and mouthfeel and some of the sensory attributes. In the case of seafood, we also have ground and form products, fish cakes and fish sticks, uh, and also surimi and other products. But as you go to the value chain where you have ribeye steak on the meat side, we have, you know, uh, Chilean sea bass or mahi mahi or tuna, you know, fillets, and they're much less complex from a, a physiological point of view, they're more of a, a repeating structure where if you think about it, you cut meat with a knife, you cut fish with a fork, you know, it flakes and it doesn't have nearly the, the muscle structure that, that meat has. And it's a much more delicate product that when I say repeating structure, it might be like muscle cells, then fat cells, muscle cells, then fat cells. So in fact, it lends itself to some of the principles of the food industry in terms of manufacturing, like extrusion, layering, or even bioprinting, that all are different processes that can be utilized to manufacture higher value seafood products that might be much more challenging on the red meat side. So hopefully that answers your question, but I think Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of what got us excited about the the cell-based seafood category is we could actually do a broad array of products without genetic engineering, but also, you know, particularly focus on those characteristics in thin fish and those product applications like the fillet, which really offers us great competitive insulation. Very important for anybody thinking about starting a food, a food industry or food company is, you know, plant-based products and cell-based products can ultimately both do ground beef products or ground fish products, hmm. one replicating it with plants, one replicating it with cells. But it'd be almost impossible for a plant-based product to do what we're doing on the higher value fillet category. So it offers us, you know, significant competitive insulation, and it also is quite uh, difficult to accomplish in the first place. So we're quite excited at, at our ability to really pioneer and hopefully lead this whole category of cell-based seafood. Yeah, it's super exciting. How long till we get to see Blue Nalu products on the shelves? So we're excited, Marie. We're, we're only sometime in late 2021. We are cautiously optimistic that we'll be able to have product in a, initially a limited test market. So mm-hmm. two things are required. One is for the FDA, U.S. Food and Drug Administration, your regulatory pathway to be clearly identified. And we're already you know, in process 
working on getting that accomplished. And the second piece is having a physical capacity in place to manufacture products for initial test market. So yeah, so late 2021, we plan to have, you know, the ability to do maybe two to 500 pounds of product per week. Our initial product will be mahi-mahi, but we'll also have developed a library of species at that point. So we'll be able to roll out, you know, thereafter and test market, not just mahi-mahi, but yellowtail or red snapper and tuna as well. So we're quite excited to, you know, really launch the test market late next year. And then maybe we're only three to five years from then to actually have product in, in more large scale uh, manufacturing operations. So it's much yeah. more near term than people may have thought. Wow. Um, so wrapping up with the last few questions, imagine you have a time machine and you can go back in time to one particularly tricky instance of growing Blue Nalo so far. So you can give your past Lou a piece of advice. To what time would you go back and what advice would you give past Lou? You know, Knockwood, we've been very fortunate thus far in, in really everything we've identified as a strategy we've been able to accomplish. I think that really it all comes with just a great deal of planning. So like all companies, we started up in stealth mode and really we're very thoughtful about how we go to market, what products. This is very It's very complicated technically. It's very complicated on the operations side, very complicated mm. on the regulatory side, on the consumer side. So, you know, we were, you know, we were just very thoughtful and just took a lot of time. And frankly, food is also can be a little political. So mm. we wanted to be very focused on developing species that can displace imports, that we can partner with the seafood industry. So we're very, we're very focused strategically on fish that are difficult to farm raise, typically imported. So we're, so we are in fact supplementing the, the, the food industry and not competing with it and instead partnering with it and bringing our products to market. So no real corrective actions to be honest, but I think that's because we were just very thoughtful on the front end to really think through strategically uh, about how really to accomplish this very challenging task ahead of us. Mm-hmm. If you would have 50 million, in what businesses would you invest it in? I, I can only say that the whole category of alternative protein is absolutely the place uh, I would recommend for, for your, all your listeners. But in, you know, food technology in general is so exciting right now. And as a person who's been in this career you know, my entire life, I've never seen anything like this at all. And I, I've done quite a bit of public you know, presentations on food trends and You know, the, the whole venture community, investment community is really in love with food tech like never before, whether it's delivery of food, home appliance technology, vertical farming, alternative protein. So I can only suggest that really think through, you know, how one could accomplish and, you know, meet a, a niche and an opportunity in the food industry. But it goes throughout the whole supply chain, you know, from farm to fork. And there's many opportunities in that space. And, uh, Study it hard, look for that, that niche that makes sense for, for all of you. Lou, thank you for being on Red to Green. It's been a pleasure, Marina. Thank you for having me. That was it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Check out the next week's episode with Brian Bethencourt. We talk about his company, Wild Earth. Pet food ingredients can be disgusting and highly low quality, even in the premium brands. Wild Earth is creating alternatives that are good for the planet and good for your pets. 
You can always have a chat with me if you like. Add me on LinkedIn. My name is Marina Schmidt. You'll find the link to my LinkedIn profile in the profile description. Until next time, let's move from red to green.